Welcome to Plenary Session Mobile Command Unit, where we are broadcasting live from the shores of Lake Ontario. I am your host, Dr. Chris Booth. I am a practicing medical oncologist and professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. I am interested in the issues at the intersection of wilderness canoe trips, sailing to work, and backyard loose tracks. And that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Listeners of this podcast might remember me from an earlier episode of Plenary Session. After leaving the Plenary Session stage, my host took me on a long and wandering road trip in search of seven waterfalls. Well, we found those waterfalls and they sure were nice, but we never made it home. In fact, we've been driving ever since looking for a way to get home. And today we are back in Kingston, Ontario, which is home to Queen's University Cancer Research Institute. Along the way, we picked up another lost oncologist who was on his way from Kathmandu to Kingston. This week on Plenary Session, we have a few things in store for you. We are going to bring you a reverse interview with the host of my and your favorite podcast, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Dr. Prasad and I will be joined by my co-host, Dr. Bishal Gawali, a medical oncologist and assistant professor of public health sciences at Queen's University. Following our reverse interview, we will discuss some other issues germane to the practice of oncology and what really matters in the career of an academic physician. You won't want to miss this discussion. I hope you find it as interesting as I did. Stay tuned. But first, I need you to do three things. First, if you come from a small village in rural Nepal and do not know how to swim, and you move to a city on a very large lake, please do not take swimming lessons from YouTube. Second, If you invite a visiting professor to go on a road trip with you in search of seven waterfalls, please bring a map. The four-month detour in rural Oregon might worry the family of your visiting guest. And finally, if you ice skate to work, please remember to skate with a friend and bring a hockey stick to ensure you can pull each other out of the water if you fall into the lake. And on that positive note, we will turn to our reverse plenary session interview with Dr. Vinay Prasad. This week on Plenary Session, Dr. Chris Booth is the host, but because Esmo is raging, I have to break in and do a little bit of a monologue. So I hope you'll indulge me before we get back to the interview hosted by Dr. Booth of me. So let's start by talking about the Flora study. This is Osimertinib in first line, non-small cell lung cancer. Well, the results are in. We finally know what improvement, if any, in median overall survival there is when you compare Osimertinib against first-generation EGFR inhibitors like Erlotinib and Gifitinib. And here's the result. The median overall survival with Osimertinib was 38.6 months versus 31.8 months with first-generation EGFR TKIs, a hazard ratio of 0.799 a p-value 0.0462, and that's less than 0.05, so hooray, pop the champagne. More than half of patients in the Osimertinib group were alive at three years, compared to 44% in the standard care group. That has been heralded online as an amazing result. In fact, somebody tweeted, that's enough for me, slam dunk, time to move on. And that's the feeling among all the KOLs online that this is as good as it gets. This is a great study. This is a practice-changing study. Well, on this podcast, I'm going to talk about four limitations to this study, which should give you pause. One thing you need to know, 
Prior to this study, what was the best treatment for somebody with EGFR mutation positive non-small cell lung cancer? Well, since it's a person with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, of course, that person would have to have a brain MRI at baseline to document occult metastatic disease and, if necessary, perform SBRT. And in fact, many KOLs have long advocated that SBRT be performed even though we know the blood-brain barrier is disrupted to some degree and drugs like erlotinib will creep along the blood-brain barrier. They won't get there enough. And there's some suggestive data that SBRT, in addition to EGFR therapy, is superior for these patients. So of course, you would screen these patients with MRI at baseline. Of course, if you found lesions, you'd refer them to your radiation oncologist who will make their best judgment on whether or not that patient needs SBRT, perhaps whole brain, or perhaps something else. Then... You'd place the patient on the standard therapy, erlotinib, knowing that 50 to 60% of people who progress on erlotinib would have T790M mutation positivity and thus be a candidate for osimertinib. Then, of course, you'd put the patient on osimertinib if they had a T790M mutation. And then, of course, if they progressed again, you would consider chemotherapy. So you would say TKI, TKI, and then chemotherapy. Now comes along osimertinib, and it wants to move to the front line. So how would you test this strategy? Well, the control arm obviously would do exactly what you're doing right now in your clinic, the best available therapy. And in the intervention arm, you would go ahead and give osimertinib up front. Whether or not you want to do an MRI on every patient in your intervention arm, that's up to you. But I think if you're sensible, you would. Whether or not you want to radiate those lesions, knowing that osimertinib has some blood-brain barrier penetration, that's also up to you. But some people might want to do that. But some people might want to just try the drug and see what happens. But that's up to the trialist. You can do what you want with your experimental arm uh, while on protocol. And you have to do what's the best available therapy in the control arm. And once your experimental arm progresses, then of course you have to do the best available therapy. You really only get that window of time while you're on therapy to do whatever you shall wish. So when you progress on osimertinib, of course, you're out of luck and you'll have no EGFR therapies available to you. You'll have to move straight to chemotherapy. And since this is a day and age where chemotherapy-free period means so much, one might think there's slightly an advantage to erlotinib first and then osimertinib because it will maximize the time off chemotherapy. Although that phrase chemotherapy-free has been misused and is now used to describe things like Nevo and Ipi. Nevo Ipi may be cytotoxic chemotherapy-free, but it is not, I'm afraid, toxicity-free. It is toxicity-full, and if anyone has rounded on an inpatient service after any provider was giving out Nevo Ipi, you will see what happens when Nevo Ipi is given. Hypophysitis thyroid dysfunction, endocrine dysfunction, pneumonitis, and a whole bunch of complications that nobody would want for anybody else. Okay, so how did they actually run the flower study? Well, I see four limitations. One, an MRI was not mandated on entry. This is in violation of the US NCCN guidelines and enriches for occult CNS disease. See, osimertinib has some blend brain barrier penetration, but erlotinib and gefitinib do not. And thus, if you don't screen for a disease at baseline and you don't recommend those patients get radiated, you are stacking the deck in favor of the osimertinib arm because it's the only drug that might get in there and treat lesions that you probably should have found that you did not find. There is no justification not to do an MRI at baseline. That is inexcusable. That is not consistent with the practice of the U.S.-based oncologists who are likely accruing on this study. You cannot have a control arm that is inferior to what you're doing in your clinical practice. That is insane. That is a violation of any ethical principle that you are taught throughout medical school. You need to look in the mirror and ask yourself, what are you doing when you are allowing control arms that are not what you would allow somebody being treated off protocol in your same clinic? 
the same attending who might berate the fellow for not recommending the MRI at baseline is now comfortable not getting the MRI at baseline when AstraZeneca says, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't do it in everybody, huh? Because then, you know, we might favor our drug. Okay, next point. This is something that it took an astute letter to the editor writer to get out of the authors. Now, you have a 3,000-word article in the New England Journal of Medicine, and you have a long supplementary appendix. And throughout the article, you talk about known or treated brain meds. Known or treated. What about known and treated? And what was known and untreated? That's what we want to know. What percent of brain meds documented at baseline were knowingly untreated with radiotherapy when this trial began? That's a very important question. What was the size of those brain meds that were untreated with radiation? And who on earth thought it justifiable not to treat those patients with radiation? What was the justification for that? Of course, when you read the entire paper and read the entire supplement, you do not even know the answer to that question. So somebody has to write a letter to the editor asking how many people People who had brain mats documented a baseline, knowing that you didn't scan everybody, but you might have scanned somebody. So even though you didn't scan everybody, you scanned some people and you found some brain mats. And of the brain mats you found, how many actually got radiotherapy? And the answer is only 25% of brain mats detected at entry were treated with radiation therapy. Now, this is again on top of the fact that you haven't looked for brain mats in everybody. But that is an astonishingly low number. Only 25%? That's not consistent with. Any practice I'm familiar with in the United States of America, and if anything, that only stacks the deck in favor of osimertinib. That is unjustifiable to enroll people whom you don't know the brain status and in whom you do know the brain status, you're not radiating the brain mets if they need to be radiated. And what we don't know is what are the size of the brain mets? Can you show me the scans? For every single person who wasn't radiated, can you upload the MRI with the best cross-sectional image? This is the reason why, at a minimum, we need trial-level data sharing. If the authors of this study and their medical writers do not think it is important to tell you what percent of brain mets were radiated at baseline and you have to wait for somebody to write a letter to the editor, we have a catastrophic problem in scientific reporting. If this person hadn't written that letter to the editor, we would never know. You would never know the answer to that question. If the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine didn't have enough page space one day, you would never know the answer to that question. In fact, there are many questions we never know the answer to because they don't take those letters, and, th and that information is never provided. This is unacceptable. This is a trial that's supposed to be used to make treatment recommendations. Third point, the rates of subsequent therapy. 30% of people, and keep in mind, these are EGFR mutation positive, trial-eligible patients. 30% of these people received no second-line therapy upon progression in this trial. 31% of osimertinib and 30% on the comparator EGFR therapy. Somebody said online, well, that's an equal percentage, so it's fair and balanced. Uh, think again. When you have a trial where one arm is progressing later than the other arm, the arm progressing early should probably have a higher percentage of subsequent therapy because people a little bit earlier are getting off protocol and are eligible for some other therapy. If they're the exact same percentage, you're assuming that patients who come off study are equally unable to participate in future therapy, which I think is one possibility. But the thing that would run against that hypothesis is the fact that this is a really high percentage. One in three people with EGFR mutation lung cancer who are eligible for a pivotal registration study are somehow not fit upon progression for any subsequent therapy. That's a ludicrous proposition. That's hard to swallow because it doesn't resonate with what many of us experience in the clinic. And it frankly makes no sense. It's probably reflects only the fact that this is a trial run in many centers where there may not be availability or affordability of subsequent therapy. Moreover, 
Only 22% of people who progress in this trial received osimertinib on the control arm. Now, we know T790M is probably implicated in about 50 to 60% of EGFR progression on TKI. And OSI is only given to 22% of such patients, maybe only about one in three. That's a, that is inferior use of post-protocol therapy. That's not testing the question of whether or not osimertinib is best up front versus whether or not osimertinib is best second line. It's testing the question of whether or not osimertinib is best up front versus very, very poor second line therapy that has nothing to do with what anyone is doing in their clinical practice. Point number four. When you use osimertinib first, you exhaust all EGFR therapy, and your next option is chemotherapy. So what we really want to see is a trial of the best available therapy, which is looking for brain mets. If you find brain mets suitable for SBRT, taking a patient to SBRT, then giving erlotinib. Then if the patient progresses, documenting T790M and giving osimertinib. And then if they progress again, giving chemotherapy. That's the control arm. Versus osimertinib up front in anybody. I think if you're wise and, you're, and you do the trial correctly in the control arm, then you'll probably want to get baseline brain MRI imaging and SBRT as needed. And then if you progress on osimertinib, unfortunately, you're probably going to get cytotoxic chemotherapy because there's not much of a role for EGFR therapy after that. So that's the trial. And then you follow quality of life, not just on the first drug, because that won't capture the full quality of life difference, you'll have to follow quality of life for the duration of metastatic treatment. You see, you want to show whether or not the combined chemotherapy-free period quality of life is superior to OSI than chemotherapy. See, that's what a fair and non-conflicted clinical trial would look like. But in this clinical trial, we see a number of design features that all put a thumb on the scale for OSI. One, we're not looking for brain mats when we should be. That enriches for occult brain mets and thus only a drug with blood-brain barrier penetration will have a chance of treating those brain mets and the other drug will be penalized. And we know that the other drug doesn't treat brain mets and that's why we do brain MRIs and that's why we do SBRT in the real world, okay? So that's a knowing distortion of trial design. Two, when you do find brain mets, a very low percentage, only one in four is getting radiation therapy at all. That's not consistent with my experience working with radiation oncologists, and I think radiation oncologists might not be too happy to hear that because they probably would have wanted an opportunity to radiate many of those patients. And if the authors think that that's fair, they're free to put all the MRI imaging of the people in whom brain nuts were found, and we can ask radiation oncologists, would you have recommended this patient get SBRT? And I don't think they want to do that because they're not going to like the answer to that question. Three, the rates of subsequent treatment are abysmally low. 30% no subsequent therapy makes no sense for this super fit population on a pivotal trial. 22% getting T790M treatment with their osimertinib on the control arm is too low. It should be 50 or 60%. So that's problematic. Poor post-protocol therapy. And four, we're not really measuring the duration of the potential quality of life benefit on the control arm. Put this all together. These are concerning limitations of this study. These limitations of this study may erode much of that six-month survival benefit. If you had a correctly done study, that benefit not going to get bigger. It's only going to get smaller. It's only going to shrink. Okay, the concerns are one thing, but I think the more interesting discussion is what's going on in the meeting? Why are these concerns not being raised? Before I leave the concerns, I want to make two more concerns. There's some other little nuggets that got, that got picked up. One... In order to cross over to osimertinib in the flower trial, you have to progress both by the opinion of the investigator and by central review. 
but that is a ludicrous thing to actually impose upon someone. Imagine what happens. You're in clinic on Tuesday. The investigator thinks you've progressed. They pull you off for a lot in it. They send your imaging to central review. You are waiting to start another therapy. You're not getting your osimertinib just yet. You're waiting. And while you're waiting, you may subsequently find out you have T790M mutation. And then you may find out that the central review thinks you're just shy of progression. You're 119%. You're not 121%. And so you didn't progress. And so then you don't get the osimertinib. You don't get to cross over. And the investigator can't put you back on the drug in hopes you'll progress next month because now you're protocol ineligible. You've been taking such a long holiday from the drug. This is crazy. Why is this requirement there? It should be the investigator, if they decide you've progressed, they'll be able to cross you over. Now, of course, I think the company did this because then they'll say, oh, the investigators will be tempted to declare progression early and cross people over to osimertinib. And then we might not find the survival benefit and people won't switch to our drug in the front line. You see, I think the entire reason they put this requirement was to prevent what they think is exuberant investigators from buying into the hype and switching patients early. And, you know, to some degree, they're building a rule that punishes patients because they have hyped the drug so much that the investigator is not an impartial person trying to maximize the allotment period. Or at least they believe that because there's no other reason why I can think that they would have such a, such a rule. The next thing is the subgroup analysis. Now, I think on a future episode, I'm going to make a joke about subgroup analysis because I think it's important that, you know, when you look at subgroups, it doesn't matter if some confidence interval spans one or other ones don't. That's not how you look at subgroups. It doesn't matter if the point estimate is 0.73, hazard ratio in one subgroup and 0.84 in the other subgroup. That's not how you look at subgroups. What you're really looking for in subgroups is for heterogeneity of treatment effect. Is the treatment effect fundamentally different on the basis of a subgroup? And one of the things a trial might provide is a p-value for interaction, which is a statistical test of interaction, asking whether or not, based on the basis of this subgroup, there's a statistically different treatment effect. Is there heterogeneity of the treatment effect in that subgroup? And, you know, that's something good trials have. I'll just say... For the statistical purists, there are a lot of people out there who believe that that's a very stringent test and you can have heterogeneity even in the absence of a significant interaction coefficient. And there are other people who believe it's not stringent enough and you really need to replicate that in a subsequent study or prospectively. Now, I'll leave that for another day because that's a whole other discussion of the statistics of subgroup. But the bottom line is what you're looking for in a subgroup analysis is that along any of these subgroups, is there a hazard ratio that's just really, really different in one subgroup, it's, you know, way of a, it's a huge benefit. And in another subgroup, it looks totally null or perhaps even detrimental. And even then, it's hypothesis generating. You should take it with a grain of salt. You can ask for interaction coefficients and all these things. So what we find here is that generally you get a 0.799 hazard ratio, you know, in the log rank and the unadjusted cox. Men and women, similar point estimate. Oh, men cross one, so does it doesn't mean it doesn't work in men. No, obviously that's not it. The trials are not powered so that every subgroup confidence interval does not cross one. It's really only powered for the primary endpoint. Um, age at screening, less than 65. The point estimate is better than greater than 65. Is there a signal there? I don't know. Hazard ratio 0 0.72, 0 0.87 rather looks kind of comparable. When you look down this list of hazard ratios, it's all you know similar treatment effect, except for race, actually. This does kind of jump out to the eye. There might be some heterogeneity of treatment effect around race. Non-Asians seem to be driving the benefit from osimertinib first. Asians don't. Now, the question arises, is race really what this is getting at? Let's say non-Asians, the hazard ratio point estimate is 0.54. Asians, it's 0.995, looking at no survival benefit at all in the Asian group. And yet 
and a significant survival benefit in the non-Asian group. So your first thought might be, does that reflect some sort of biological difference between someone's race and the treatment effect in this trial? But then I would ask you to go pull up the interaction along Asian, non-Asian for PFS. Well, that looks very different. When you look at that, the hazard ratio for Asians is 0.55, and the hazard ratio for non-Asians is 0.34. And in both cases, it looks like it's favoring osimertinib in terms of PFS. Although in OS, it's totally different. It's 0.54 and 1. Okay, so what, what's the interpretation here? One possibility is that this is a spurious subgroup analysis. It's, it's not something biological. Okay, I think that things that point against that are the fact that it was shown both for PFS and for OS, and you could do an interaction coefficient, and you could try to replicate this finding in the future. So, you know, somebody will adjudicate that. But one thing to keep in mind is that this is spurious. We shouldn't be looking at that. Two, the next possibility is, of course, that there's some biological difference here. There's something different about Asian EGFR, mutation-positive non-small cell lung cancer versus non-Asian. And so there's a biologically different heterogeneity of treatment effect. That's the second possibility. The third possibility is that there's something that's being captured in the care of these patients that's different. The patients, the Asian patients being enrolled on this study might be enrolled in centers where those centers are doing a better job of giving those patients subsequent EGFR therapy in accordance with the best available standards of care. They're getting more osimertinib in the second line. They're getting better brain imaging at the baseline. They're getting better SBRT. They might be getting better care overall. It's another possibility. We don't know which of these three possibilities. And if anything, it's simply food for thought. What I would say is, if people made all of this trial data available, we could really kind of explore these hypotheses and put together an argument for, for what we think is probably the most likely explanation of this, of this finding. Now I want to talk about the elephant in the room, which is the large number of people who are receiving personal payments from AstraZeneca and are commenting about this trial. I want to make it very clear because I think there's some confusion. And in discussions with people online and offline, I've seen this confusion. There are two general classes of payments made to physicians. One, research payments. Research payments are only made to the physician uh, kind of in name only. They're really given to the university, and that money is used to pay for the research. And some proportion of that money may be used to support the investigator's time, but usually on the order of about 5% of their time, not a large percent of their time. Now, there are a number of ways in which research payments can be gained that I won't get into in this podcast. For instance, people can create elaborate slush funds. People can have um, huge amounts of money linked to correlative studies that they perform in their own lab for far lower cost, and thus they skim off the difference in price. Uh, you know, all sorts of games that can be played. But for the most part, let's leave the research payments aside. They are often and perhaps generally used to pay for research. Okay, forgivable. Personal payments. All of these doctors who work in the United States and in Canada, and probably in other parts of the world, though I don't know exactly, but at least in the United States and Canada, they are paid for being a doctor, usually pretty well. And compared to other parts of the world, doctors in, in the U.S. are paid disproportionately well. It's, it's still a well-paying job. Now, somebody might say, well, they're not paid as well in academia as they're paid in private practice. That might be true, but they're still paid many times the average household income of this country. And they're still almost exclusively in the 1% of earners in this country. So that's pretty good. Now, in addition to that money, that money, of course, is never enough. 
um, these doctors receive payments when they go to meetings sponsored by the industry, these key opinion leader meetings or ad boards, where they contribute advice or information and may receive a check for 2000 5000 10000 20000 30000 Who knows? Depends on how good the advice is. I think the one thing that has to be said is it is really naive to believe that the transaction is really about giving advice for giving money. That's the way in which the transaction is framed for maximum psychological benefit. The transaction is really about giving money and hearing somebody out. And if you let somebody believe they're giving you really good advice that you didn't know before, that probably strengthens the allegiance of of the tie, probably makes you feel even more favorable and strongly towards that company. In fact, the mere fact that so many people who are just a couple years out of fellowship are being invited to advisory boards when they frankly probably know very little about the disease process and very little about drug design is it should be should be a clue that it's not really soliciting advice. Why would the company that's being run by somebody who was, you know, in a very, very high position in Gustav Rusi, somebody who is the physician-in-chief of Sloan Kettering, people who've run many, 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 many clinical trials and have a deep knowledge of lung cancer, who've written many, many review articles. Why are they soliciting the opinion of someone one year out of fellowship, you know, two years out of fellowship, five years out of fellowship? It's a joke. It's not about the opinion of the person in the ad board. It's about giving you money, letting you give your opinion, and making you feel tied to the trial, making you feel some sense of loyalty to the company. It's a psychological tactic. If you think that you're above that, you are really deluding yourself into thinking you're giving them something super valuable or or, or wonderful. Okay, that's it. Uh, Nobody needs to take the money. You're paid well enough on your own. If you want to give them advice, give them advice. You don't need to take money for advice. Giving students advice every single day, not a single student is giving me a check for $5,000. All those students, if you want to give me a check for $5,000, I won't say no, you know? You could twist my arm, I'll take the money. But giving advice, isn't that part of your job? Isn't that part of the job of somebody who claims to be an academic trialist? Anyway, so many, many people have conflict of interest, and they're, of course, hailing this trial as spectacular, game changer. That's enough for me. It's a home run. Um, I think I think they're finally getting a little bit pushback, and let me read you some quotes. This is, this is from Lars Soras, um, who I believe is from Norway, and he's a patient advocate, and he writes, quote, Your words would carry more weight if you did not have a conflict of interest with AstraZeneca. The analysis presented on the slide is flawed and simplistic. Patients and society who will pay for this expensive treatment deserve better than this. A physician writes back, I also have a conflict of interest with AstraZeneca among other companies. The doctor is discussing the data as it is, and I agree. The quantum of cost for Aussie is the same monthly ballpark as all of the IO agents. How society spends its money becomes its own problem. Oh, boy, boy, doctor. That's not nice to say. Um, You really believe that you play no part in the high cost of drugs? The reason they're giving you the money is so you keep your mouth shut about the drug prices. You're not outraged by the drug prices, and here you are doing exactly what they want you to do. You know, it's not my business as a doctor who takes care of patients with lung cancer day in and day out who often can't afford the copay to talk about the price of the drugs. It's not my business. How society spends its money is its own problem. That's his quote. How society spends its money, it's its own problem. I'm sorry. If you wanted to honor the commitment you made, it is your problem, too. And how society spends its money is all of our problem. It's the problem of your patients who whose premiums are going up, who can't afford their premium, who who often have cancer and don't quit their job because they're so worried about losing health insurance. These costs hurt patients in so many ways. It is so flippant to say it's not your problem as a physician. And 
it's hard not to believe it's not the money that's blinding you to the fact that you have an obligation, a moral obligation to speak out about this. Oh, next quote. Part of the cost is how much goes into getting the drug and how many other compound studies fall by the wayside. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Is that so? Well, you need to read a paper by me and Sean Mylan Cody that's in JAMA Internal Medicine. That's the real cost of R&D to bring a drug to market, where we look at 10 successful companies who had 44 compounds, 34 of which did not succeed. These are 44 compounds in clinical testing. 34 did not succeed. And many, many hundreds more, perhaps in the laboratory. And we find it's $775 million to bring a drug to market. Meanwhile, the average revenue post-approval from the WHO is $12.1 billion in a 14-year life cycle. So that is clearly wrong and you of course are coming to believe this because of course you're taking money this person pushed back i'm sorry the lars pushes back i'm sorry to inform you that the idea that the high cost of modern cancer drugs is due to high production costs is a wholly misconceived argument that has no root in reality whatsoever it may be a pharma talking point but that does not mean it's true lars goes on I have just pointed out he has a conflict of interest. AstraZeneca pays you guys and they monitor your tweets. I think people who read your tweets should know that so that they can judge if this setup has influenced what you write. I believe research even shows it actually does. And then, does he cite? Does he cite my paper on... Ah, he does! He cites the paper we did that actually shows that, um, yeah, that conflict of interest is related to more favorable tweets on Twitter. Um, this person argues back. Um, I would still prefer to use Aussie for Exxon 19, but less sold on L858R. Okay, so he's looking at another subgroup right now. Okay, fine, 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 fine. I'll put that aside. I gotta say, I like this Lars. I like him because he's really hitting this issue super hard, which is, what, oh, I mean, what do you want a patient to believe here? These are drugs that have real toxicity. The cost of osimertinib I haven't talked about yet. It's four times, three to four times the price of any other TKI in this space. It's tremendously pricey. It failed by the Canadian cost-effectiveness analysis to meet a cost-effectiveness threshold. That's assuming that all of these gains seen in these trials are real. It's extremely costly. And what do you want a patient advocate to think when everyone is a rah-rah cheerleader for this drug when... People are saying the cost doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's society's problem, how they spend their money. If you, want, if you want to let a few children go hungry in schools and let schools go to hell and let roads go to hell and let society go to hell so that a few people can get a super costly drug that's only justification is a super flawed randomized control trial, that's society's problem. It's not my problem. Thanks, AstraZeneca, for $40,000 a year in take-home payments. How, what should a patient think about that? Isn't it disgraceful? Isn't it embarrassing? Shouldn't the patients be critical as Lars is and just punishing people online because I think he's absolutely right? That, you know, this is not what patients want. They want doctors to be impartial arbiters of this evidence. And the other thing I'd say is there's some people out there who think the conflict doesn't affect me because I'm still critical of the product. What they don't realize is that there is a spectrum from total cheerleading on the left to total criticism on the right. And conflict probably moves everyone along that spectrum to the left so that, you know, mediocre cheerleaders become NFL cheerleaders. People who are critical become a little less critical. It, perhaps if you didn't have the conflict, you would be even more critical. You would be vehement in your criticism. You would say the criticism is so damning that the trial doesn't actually prove what you think it proves. You'll take the criticism to the next level, perhaps without conflict. One doesn't know what the counterfactual is for without conflict because our entire field is so deeply marinating in these ties. I think they're untenable. You know, in the current times, some of the same oncologists who feel no remorse or shame for taking personal payments from the pharmaceutical industry, who do not believe it influences their judgment and believe that this is perfectly acceptable, 
are also extremely outspoken and critical of the current political climate. I sometimes see them lapsing into politics. And what I, shocks me is they don't see the glaring hypocrisy of their position. For instance, one of the political issues that is being discussed a lot now is whether or not when somebody's on a phone call with another country, and this person may have withheld aid from that country, and this person says, you know, do me a favor, though. Before we talk about your aid, do me a favor. And that favor, of course, is investigate my political opponent. These people are quick to say that it doesn't matter if there's a quid pro quo on that call. That's not good. You know, it's pretty not good, even if they didn't say, oh, I didn't explicitly say, in exchange for this, you do this. Okay, you don't have to get that far. The same people who criticize political figures for, say, owning a golf course and then routing military flights to your golf course um, and and going uh, to other countries and, and finding a way to stay at your, at your place at huge cost to taxpayers and the public. They view that as a form of graft, of embezzlement, of corruption. They view it as a form of a degradation of the political system. They view it as a form of political corruption. And yet they do not see that a doctor who is supposed to be an impartial observer of clinical trials, an impartial arbiter of industry clinical trials, taking money from that industry and then cheerleading for that trial is the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. In the absence of quid pro quo, it is the receipt of financial benefit to you that is influencing your decisions that have a fiduciary duty to another person. Both the politician has a fiduciary duty to the public, and when they engage in these sorts of relationships, they violate that fiduciary duty for their personal gain. The doctor has a fiduciary duty to the patient, and when they take money from the company and then cheerlead for the company's products and don't mention the flaws of the products, they violate that fiduciary duty. It's the exact same thing. So you should not be angry at a politician. If you cannot hold yourself to a higher standard than that politician. You should look in the mirror and see simply a lesser politician. You're just doing it at a less successful scale. In fact, you're selling out for less money. And if anything, it's perhaps more embarrassing and more shameful than the politician. Because last I checked, doctors take real oaths, not like politicians who take an oath to get reelected. Doctors take an oath to something that I think is far more sacred than that. So, Bottom line, um, Lars has been up in arms about the fact that the discussant of this study at ESMO is actually um, a paid consultant for AstraZeneca. I think he's right. Uh, oh, on what planet is that acceptable that our discussants are paid by the company? And I, I looked through the slides of, of the discussion and it's all, uh, this is practice changing, game changing, miracle revolution, cure. you know, it's all just positive stuff. Not a single one of the four key concerns I raised was mentioned in that in that discussion. So. Bottom line here, Flora trial. It's a flawed study. It's a study that stacks the deck. That 6.8-month benefit, that's an upper-bound estimate of the benefit of this drug. And if you corrected the flaws of that study, it could be as low as zero months. We don't know. Uh, is it acceptable that we live in a world where patients with EGFR mutation lung cancer will never know the answer to what is the best therapy? Is it better that I get SBRT and then erlotinib for my properly documented brain mets uh, and then osimertinib for my properly tested for T790M in a climate where osimertinib is actually given appropriately second line? Is that better than osimertinib up front? Patients will never know the answer to that true question that faces clinicians because that was not tested in this study. It was a farce of a question tested in this study that was meant to favor the sponsor's product. And 
and patients will not get the benefit of having a group of impartial oncologists holding the industry to task, forcing them to redesign future studies, and calling out these bad studies because that group of oncologists has taken hand over fist personal payments from that company and has likely uh, lost sight of objectivity here and the entire axis of enthusiasm is shifted left, which is exactly what the company wants. And if anything, the company is charging so much money and paying the doctor so little, the doctor is getting a raw deal. The amount of money the doctor is getting from this entire arrangement is actually very low. It is a good deal for the company for a little bit of money given to doctors for consulting that surely provides advice they need. They are getting a huge benefit on the back end. And they just need a few more doctors who have the guts to go online and say, how society spends its money becomes its own problem. And the, the, the cost of Aussies in the same ballpark for all of the IO agents, uh, not recognizing the fact that it's much more expensive than the other drugs, the other erlotinib and gefitinib, and not recognizing the fact that how society spends its money when you are being paid by the company and telling society how to spend their money and then going to work for the NCCN guidelines and forcing society to spend their money that way, that's all our problem. And we need to put, I think, 100% stop to this terrible, pernicious practice. And I think people will have to look in the mirror someday. And if they want to be critical of politicians for engaging in this kind of behavior, and if they want to say quid pro quo does not have to be explicit, they have to ask themselves, am I any better than that? And shouldn't I be? And on that positive note, I turn the podcast back over to Dr. Christopher Booth, who is the host of this week's plenary session. Here we are in the mobile command unit on the shores of Lake Ontario. Dr. Gowali and I are pleased to interview the host of plenary session, Dr. Vinay Prasad, but today he's in the hot seat, and this is a reverse episode. Thank you, Dr. Prasad, for joining us on the plenary session stage. Is this what you always imagined it would look like? This is so much better than the real plenary session because everything I'll tell you is my opinion only, and nobody made my slides. <laughs> it's a gorgeous view here out in uh, Kingston, Ontario, at the Yachting Club, looking out on Lake Ontario. And uh, I'm, I'm gathered here with uh, my, my close friend and colleague, Dr. Gowali. Welcome, Dr. Gowali, and thank you for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, Dr. Prasad, you have an audience of two, unlike the real plane. <laughs> <laughs> this way I'm guaranteed at least two listeners. Yeah. So uh, where shall we start? Well, let's see. I'm going to start with the questions that you normally ask of your guests. So Dr. Prasad, um, listeners of this podcast should know uh, Dr. Prasad uh, grew up in Ohio uh, and later near Chicago. He studied philosophy at Michigan State University. He then undertook a medical school at the University of Chicago, postgraduate training in internal medicine at Northwestern before moving to the NCI for his fellowship in hematology and oncology. Along the way, he picked up a master's in public health at Johns Hopkins University. He's now been faculty at OHSU uh, and is an associate professor of medicine, and you've been there for about four years. Is that right, Vinay? That's right, just over four years now. And, and I must say, um, I've been following your career with interest since you were a trainee, and you've had an explosive start to that career, and I think we'll touch on some of those themes later. But I guess where I want to start, Vinay, is to hear a little bit about uh, what drew you to medicine. Did you always think you would go into medical school? I must admit that your studies in philosophy have always intrigued me, and uh, perhaps I'll, I'll make some other comments on that later. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here on the podcast, um, on, on plenary session. It's, uh, it's a different feel to be in this seat, in the guest seat. So um, thanks for having me, Dr. Booth. Um, I guess I'd say that, uh, 
you know, when I went to college, I, I wasn't I wasn't sure that I would go into medicine. I was like many people who came out of high school who was interested in science and and in math, and and that's kind of how I went to college. And I always thought medicine was interesting because you know you could combine working with people with an interest in science. Um, but then during my college, I got really interested in philosophy, and as you know, I took a lot of classes in it. And I ended up majoring in it and giving the commencement speech for the philosophy department um, for the College of Arts and Letters. And I guess I would say that, you know, philosophy interests me a great deal. I think it's really trying to think more accurately, more critically, um, to reason through arguments better. Um, And it probably does underpin a lot of the work I do in medicine. I think you said that earlier today, and I think you were right, Um, because I think I do kind of apply that mindset to medicine. But part of the immediate push to go into medicine was that I had a roommate in college, and he was going to take the MCAT, and he kind of encouraged me to sign up and take it the same year that he was taking it, I think in part because he wanted some company. Mm-hmm. But it was also a good external motivator to actually do the requisite, you know, pre-medical requirements to at least keep options open. Mm-hmm. And then when I finished training, um, you know, I applied for medical school, and I, I went right after college. And um, so maybe I'll just pause there, and uh, listeners of the podcast, uh, I guess I should mention too, as, as the host or the co-host today, I have a few, um, I call them VPisms, and there's some lines that, uh, that Dr. Gowali and I might intersperse through the interview, and I must say that uh, perhaps there would be some kind of competition for listeners who, who can correctly identify the f- catchphrases and some of the mannerisms of our usual hosts that we're able to emulate today. So in any case, uh, I guess I'll come back to that, but I will um, tell listeners of the podcast that Dr. Prasad gave a masterful grand rounds uh, this morning at Queen's University. Uh, where he discussed ending medical reversal. Yesterday, he gave an academic seminar to the oncology trainees on cancer drug policy and drug development. And as I said in my um, comments to the um, Department of Medicine and Department of Oncology audience this morning, I see you, Vinay, as a philosopher-oncologist. And I think that has profoundly uh, influenced the way in which you dissect problems and approach things using both logic and uh, also very persuasive arguments. So um, I'm sure your philosophy professors and classmates would be proud to see that I think it's continued to be an important part in in your career development. But um, I guess let's get back to medical school. So you started medical school, and other than being a philosopher-physician, uh, how did you end up in internal medicine and oncology? So I guess, you know, we do, we do two years of preclinical science in, in University of Chicago Medical School. And to be honest with you, I, I think I was pretty, pretty annoyed in those first two years. I mean, Is that because they didn't teach the Krebs cycle? <laughs> <laughs> we had to memorize a bunch of, I think, you know, a, a bunch of things that were tedious memorization that one wondered if one would ever use. And now with the luxury of you know, more than a decade out of medical school, I know for sure I didn't use those things. So uh, that was a lot of irrelevant memorization. And you really didn't get a sense of what clinical medicine was like, what the day-to-day was like, what the problems you encountered were like. And it was only when I went into third-year medical school and the clerkships that I really started to feel like this was a good choice, this was the right choice, that it was a nice blend of seeing people, thinking about what was going on, using sort of the skills of clinical reasoning, but combining that with sort of understanding evidence-based medicine and and listening to somebody and combining sort of the art of medicine with the science of it. And it really kind of tied together for me in the clerkship years. And one of the first clerkships I did was internal medicine. And I knew off the bat that, you know, I had an affinity for it. I liked it a lot. I got along well with many of the professors, including Adam Sifu, with whom I ended up working together a lot with and writing that book. 
Um, so I knew it was a, a good fit. Um, but I still wanted to kind of explore the other options. And for, I think, the remainder of medical school in the fourth year, I, I did elective rotations on everything from radiation oncology to some surgical rotations just to get a flavor for what, you know, what else was out there. And I'll just tell you an aside. One of the things I missed most about medical school was that opportunity that you'd kind of get to be a fly on the wall, you know, in so many different situations. Recently, I shadowed one of the orthopedic surgeons at OHSU. I spent a half day with her, did a couple of uh, total knee arthroplasties. And I did that because, you know, it's a very rare opportunity you get to kind of see what someone does and, and what it's like. And I learned things that I never learned in medical school because I never rotated in orthopedic surgery. So it was kind of a privilege to get to do that. But I'll say one more thing about philosophy. You emailed me a while back, and um, you were listening to a plenary session. And in the plenary session, I was talking about, I think I was talking about a drug that was approved under kind of dubious circumstances. And somebody online had said, you know, it doesn't matter if we all agree that this is a good drug. All that matters is that for some people, it would be a favorable risk-benefit to them. And then I, I kind of, you know... I didn't like that argument. I, I, I criticized it by arguing that if you really held that position, that all that matters is that this is acceptable risk and benefit to someone, then you don't need regulators at all because something will be an acceptable risk benefit to someone. Let individuals decide. So it was kind of a reductio ad absurdum argument. But you emailed me to say, I see your philosophy training showing. Yeah, yeah. I certainly do see it come through. Um, so perhaps we'll take a brief break. Great. Well, we're back in the mobile command unit after the first course of our lunch overlooking beautiful Lake Ontario and the ferry going to Wolf Island. And uh, Benai, you were just telling us about your journey through medical school and how you were drawn towards internal medicine, but you enjoyed the opportunity to explore different areas of medicine. And one of the comments after your grand rounds today was just, uh, just the utmost admiration for how you've been able to keep abreast of literature in such diverse fields uh, as you have. And I suspect that your natural curiosity um, has continued since medical school to kind of understand what we do throughout, throughout medicine and surgery. So walk us through then uh, the decision near the end of medical school to go into internal medicine. I want to hear that, but I also want to hear, did you push back in medical school? Were you kind of a provocateur? And uh, did, did you challenge evidence and ask um, difficult questions at that phase, or is that something that came to you later in your training? Oh, that's interesting. I guess I'd say, um, I think for the first two years, I didn't ask any difficult questions because there was not much difficult topic material. It really is rote memorization. And then I think in my third year, when I was on that internal medicine clerkship, I think I was assigned to um, give a lecture on mammography for women between the ages of 40 and 50. And I remember going into that exercise thinking that you know, if a doctor is going to recommend this, this probably is something that has a large and indisputable benefit. After all, we are very aggressive in the way we recommend it in clinic. And so it was kind of sobering to me when I actually started to pull the studies to prepare this 15-minute talk that the evidence was really unclear and that a very recent study, I think a 2006 study in The Lancet by Moss, found really no benefit even on breast cancer-specific mortality. So I started that exercise as naive, almost as a believer, and I ended as sort of pretty skeptical or critical of the evidence base of mammography. And then in the years that followed, I had a chance to read more papers and papers by Gocha and, and others who have been, I think, far more critical. So that to me kind of was an eye-opening moment, which was 
that just because something is treated as dogma, just because a lot of people do it, just because it's adopted as part of Western medicine, doesn't mean necessarily that it'll actually benefit people. Um, and then I started to get more of that experience throughout the wards when you start to look at what medicines people are on. Um, I got a taste of that in surgery when you start to ask, like, why are we even doing the surgery in the first place? And then when I became an internist, I started to get a flavor of that. But for the most part as a trainee, my philosophy was maybe I'm missing something. You know, maybe it's just something that I need to read or educate myself. So I kind of was quiet about things until I felt like I had read enough to say, you know, maybe I'm not missing something. And so it was only, you know, as a resident that we started to publish some papers in that space. Did you actually have any dispute with the attending uh, your mentors regarding any clinical practice because you thought that was not evidence-based but it was being practiced anyway? No, I guess I'd say that that's always a tricky thing because as, certainly as a student, no. As a resident, there are things you'll encounter that I think you feel like are not evidence-based. And I think there's a narrow line to walk, which is, on the one hand, if you do see something egregious that you think is harmful to patients you really have an obligation to speak up. On the other hand, you have to recognize that you're not the attending of record. You're not in the driver's seat. The decision is ultimately not yours. And someone should be able to practice medicine you know, within reasonable bounds, even if that's something you disagree with. And someday you will have earned that privilege when you become an attending physician. So I guess I always tried to walk that line. And where I thought people overstepped things, I would kind of push back on rounds and make the case for why we shouldn't do something. A lot of people were receptive to that. But a lot of the times I felt like, you know, this is something that I personally look at a little bit differently, but I definitely see when you survey 100 cardiologists or oncologists that this is what a lot of people do. So, you know, it's a, it's a battle to be fought on a different level. In those cases, when you, I think when you really disagree with the practice, it's easy to, it's not really useful to argue with one person who happens to be practicing just because you see them practice. It's much more useful to think about how can you change the field's idea about something. I mean, I'm sure you feel this way about your work, Dr. Yeah, Boot. No, I do. And so I, I want to get back to kind of your transition into internship and residency. But I, um, part of me feels like um, one of the primary goals of medical school should be to teach skills in evidence-based medicine, critical appraisal, and critical thinking. And I, th I think you actually teach a course at OHSU in that topic now, so I'd like to hear about that course, but tell us a little bit about your experience in medical school. Were you taught principles of evidence-based medicine, critical appraisal, critical thought? When we're nearing the end of our second year of medical school, we take a course called CPP&T, Clinical Pathophysiology, Pharmaceuticals and Therapeutics, or something like that, another anacronym mouthful that we love in medical education. Um, and in that course, there were a couple of consummate clinicians who really were evidence-based medicine practitioners. And they kind of came and gave us lectures about, you know, not everything on the physical exam is a sensitive or specific finding. What are the findings on the physical exam that actually do have strong positive or negative likelihood ratios? What are some of the rule-in and rule-out features of diagnostic testing? What should your index of suspicion be? What is the evidence that we use to evaluate therapies? I thought that was a very helpful class. And then when I started on third-year clerkship, Scott Stern, Adam Sifu, and Diane Alcorn teach the clerkship, and they have a book called Symptom to Diagnosis, which is a really great evidence-based book about moving from chief complaints and symptoms to diagnosis. And so I would say that as a student at University of Chicago, you don't get it early. You don't get it in your first year. You don't get it in the beginning of your second year. But you do eventually get, I think, a really robust training in evidence-based medicine. So I was fortunate to get that in my medical school. I think a lot of people I've met over the years, they don't get that in their medical school. And Benai, is that when you and Dr. Sifu first met and started working together? 
Yeah, I think we we met and we didn't. We certainly didn't. I don't think we published any papers together while I was a student. It was all when I was a resident. But it was where we met, where we kind of hit it off. I took one of a class that Dr. Sifu takes, which is on reading medical literature critically, which is kind of what I've tried to model my class after. And I guess I would say, as is so often the case in life, even though Adam is a great teacher and an incredibly thoughtful internist, I think in addition to those things, what drew me to him is also that we are kind of have a similar sense of humor, although he might not want that to be disclosed. <laughs> um, but you know how often is it's it's because you hit it off personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell us about how that relationship developed then. So you were a student, took a course, looked up to him, and yeah. then you moved to a different institution for residency. And so how did you keep in touch, and how did um, the two of you come up with the idea to write a book? So I guess there's a, there's a part that I'd add to that, which is that I took the course, I respected him, and then when... In life, there are those choices to make, like where you're going to go for residency and, and what, you know, what you're going to do and, and what you think is interesting. Um, all medical students turn to someone to ask that to, and it's somebody you respect usually. And for me, that was Adam, so I probably peppered him with questions about applications and interviews and where to go and where to look, and he humored me with much sage advice. And I wish I could say it was only when I was a student, but he's given me sage advice many times over the years, even as a faculty member. Um, so you need somebody like that in your life, I think. Somebody who, it's not just that you trust their clinical judgment, but you trust their kind of vision of what it means to be a good physician. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, I always had him in mind when I was on the wards and, and working as an internist. And and I think I was in the cardiac intensive care unit. And we had discussed in his class, of course, the COURAGE trial, which had come out in 2007. And I was seeing some stenting that, you know, made one think about courage. And I would talk to Adam from time to time by email or we'd occasionally meet for coffee and we'd kind of discuss these issues. And, you know, we kind of started talking about this idea of medical reversal, how often it happens, could we measure it? And we started doing some, I think, opinion writing in that space, so perspective writing, but also (coughs) original article writing in that space. And that was really when I was a resident. And I think we first published something in maybe 2010 or 2011. Um, and uh, it was a good relationship. We had a good working relationship. And so... Was this the focus then of the research you did during internal medicine core training was on reversal? All reversal, yeah. It was reversal with Dr. Sifu. Right. Yeah. It was a crazy idea we got in our heads and we mm-hmm. wanted to kind of grind it out. And, and even the things we did that were outside of reversal are kind of related. So we wrote a paper in, in the archives of internal medicine, what it was then called, called The Diagnosis and Treatment of Pulmonary Embolism, where we wondered if... Um, we had massive indication drift in pulmonary embolism. It's really kind of an evidence-based medicine piece, which I think is what reversal is really about. Um, And so how did you go from publishing papers as a resident with a mentor and teacher to writing a book? Walk us through that conversation. So I guess I would say Adam should do that because he deserves the credit for thinking about that. Because he, I remember we met once in the hospital at Northwestern. I was giving a lecture. And after the lecture on medical reversal, you know, all the residents have to give a kind of a resident talk. And Adam was kind enough to come and attend. And he said afterwards to me, you know, we've been doing this stuff. We've been writing these papers been talking about this for years. This is really best at a book length form. This was like circa 2011 or 2012. And I think my first thought was, well, we'll see, you know, someday. Right now, I'm clinically busy and didn't have much time. And then when I became a fellow, you know, he had kind of reminded me of this idea for a while. And I became a fellow, and towards the end of the first year of fellowship, he brought it up again, and we thought, you know, let's take a stab at this. And I don't know, this will lead to a long digression about, like, how you actually write a book. But the, the short answer is you, you write a summary of what you want to write, and then you try to find somebody interested in reading that and publishing that, and then you write the book only thereafter. So we wrote the summary, and we shopped it around, and I think it took 
you know, well over a year before anyone kind of bit and wanted to publish that. And um, so just to finish this piece before we go back to general medicine training, so this is you're now a Hemonk fellow in a different city, mm-hmm. keeping in touch with Adam, and mm-hmm. you, your synopsis of the book, is, uh, the publisher has shown interest in it. So when, when, when did you guys actually write it? Were you still a fellow at the time? Mm-hmm. And were you able to, you know, reuse portions of text and things that you'd already written for manuscript, or were you starting with a blank screen, or tell us about that? So I guess I'd say... Um, I think we wrote it between January and July of 2014. So it was a six-month period of time that we wrote the majority of the book. We had maybe about three or four chapters, but the book turned out to be something like, I think, 18 chapters or something like that. So we had to write the majority in that time. We, we, were, we didn't reuse material, but we were lucky we didn't have a blank slate. So we knew at the outset we wanted to have six or seven chapters just taking you through reversals, like reversals in devices, reversals in drugs, reversals in quality and safety metrics, reversals in systems-based practice, reversals based on surrogates, reversals based on subjective measures. You know, we had ideas for themes by which we could group reversals. And we knew we wanted to take people through that just to illustrate that it's not unique to surrogates, it's not unique to subjective, it's, it's really kind of spans many things. We also knew we wanted to educate people on what is an observational study, what is a randomized trial, when do you use them, how do you, you know, make sense of these studies. So we needed a little primer on evidence-based medicine. We knew we wanted to get into a little bit of the psychology or maybe sociology of medicine, like, you know, all the way back to Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions and kind of put this idea in sort of a broader philosophical framework. And the last thing we knew is we wanted to kind of give people something that they can walk away with in terms of solutions. So we had an idea that we're going to write this section, this section, this section, but exactly what we're going to put in, we didn't know. How did you operationalize then? Did, did, did each of you take the lead on certain chapters, or did you sketch out a, an outline together, or how did that writing process work? I guess I'd say, you know, at some point I'm going to have Adam on the show and we'll probably talk about how he did it, but I think the, the way it was predominantly done was, you know, I think I took the lead in drafting the first draft, and then Adam took the lead in doing the first real revision. And we're talking about a revision that is probably as comparable as drafting the first draft, right, you know, right, right. A, 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 deep rev, a deep revision. And then after that, I just made a few minor subject, you know, changes, and then Adam took the last pass. And, you know, it's funny to me that when I, see, when I see reversal quotes every once in a while on the Internet, somebody says, I really like this passage in the book. I always, I always smile when I wrote it. Uh, but I, uh, I but I also smile when Adam wrote it, and I can tell you that Adam is crushing me on the quotability. He's crushing me. Like I know Adam put that sentence in. Well, there's some famous and very poetic paragraphs. This is a very interesting conversation, but uh, I guess I'd like to know, like, I'd like to know your whole journey of academic growth as a writer. So when was the first peer-reviewed paper you published in your life? Uh, 2009. It was... In my medical school, I did a summer project where we read a lot of Martin Heidegger and we tried to do some sort of philosophy thinking in medicine. And we had this paper that was written about it, which kind of tried to make sense of allopathic medicine and alternative medicine. And I had written that, and on a lark, you know, it wasn't meant to be published because I didn't know what publishing meant, but on a lark, I kind of submitted it. And it was immediately accepted by the first journal that saw it with no revisions, and I was like, this is crazy. So that was, I think, a huge motivation. Uh-huh. 
Which journal was that? It was a Hastings Center report, which is a really oh, yeah. respectable yeah. bioethics yeah. journal. Yeah. And Benai, have you ever had another paper since then of your 200 plus <laughs> manuscripts? Have you ever sent one off and they've just taken it with no revisions? Oh my that's God. That's an auspicious start, Dr. Prasad. I know. Yeah. And it was only downhill, Dr. Boone. Oh, <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> because and, I don't and, think so. I and mean, did you have to give them $3,000 to publish your paper? No, those were back in the days where no, they pu- was, there was yeah. no my, and, financial. Uh, but you must have had some help in the background with spin uh, consulting companies. Um, I, my medical writer uh, did it for free back then. No. For free. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. so that's good. When you were doing your training, uh-huh. did it ever occur to you that you maybe you wanted to be a pure clinician and never an academician or, or never write papers, just practice medicine? Absolutely. I think I might have said this on this podcast before, but um, I, I didn't even think I would be in academics until... We had published maybe 20 papers. You know, I'd always expected to be a clinician to predominantly see patients. I didn't even know you could have an academic career doing this kind of work, to be honest with you. Policy research. Maybe I would be a clinician educator, you know, in the tract where you would spend time with students and teach them clinical skills. But I don't think, I didn't think it would be a research career. So, So Vinay, then, um, sorry, Vishal, I'm so carrying on the theme of career development. Mm -hmm. So you're training in internal medicine uh, in Chicago. Um, doing some work on medical reversal. Um, and then did you have a hard time deciding what to do beyond that? Did you always know you wanted to go in oncology? What, what was that process like? I think as a medical resident, I gravitated towards really three fields. ICU critical care medicine, cardiology, which I still kind of have an interest in. I still have an interest in all these things, even critical care medicine. Um, and oncology I never really thought seriously about because I think so often as an inpatient resident, you don't have a lot of positive experiences with oncology, you see kind of the toughest stuff and you don't see the rewarding part, the outpatient clinic. But I was doing a a month of leukemia service and I think one of the attendings there, actually a couple of the attendings, really struck a chord. I thought of them as like consummate clinicians. They did a wonderful job. They really explained the biology of what they were doing and and why it matters. And, And I think it was largely the influence of those unique people. Had I been Rounded with two different people that month, I might have not gone into it. You know, I might have been an intensivist right now. Mm-hmm. So it always seems as if you are destined to do what you do. But if it were in retrospect that I was in ICU attending, I think I would probably largely be doing similar things. Mm-hmm. I would so be the, talking about the evidence. But this podcast goes to those two attendings. Oh, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we talked about this when I was on the hot scene being interviewed Mm -hmm. uh, in the mobile command unit by the waterfall, but you're right, we actually had similar kind of thought process because I was going to be an intensive care unit doctor, and it wasn't until I had actually only two days in the outpatient clinic at Princess Margaret Hospital that I had this radical change of heart and wanted to go into oncology. I think, as we've discussed previously on on some hikes and phone calls, that some of the similar themes um, resonated for both you and I. What would you have done, Vishal, had you not done oncology? Uh, I don't know. I, I was pretty sure that... I would not want to go to any surgical discipline. So no surgery or orthopedics or, or gyne-ops, or those disciplines. I wanted to be in the field of medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the reason I went to oncology was because of a patient. Uh, and at the time, in Nepal, like the hospital that I was trained in is the biggest teaching hospital in Nepal. It's called the Tribhuvan University Teaching Hospital. And that hospital did not have any oncology department. So, you know, I saw cancer patients... Uh, having a lot of problems because the biggest hospital in the country does not have a department of oncology. Um, and uh, while I was doing my internship in surgery, in fact, uh, we had a patient with rectal cancer. And I, I, 
I got very attached to the patient. He was like, I used to call, call him father uh, in, in Nepali language, and we used to have very private conversations. Um, and then I realized that the cancer patients who are towards the very end of life, I guess I was attracted more towards palliative care mm-hmm. in hindsight mm-hmm. than oncology per se. I found that these patients are so pure in a sense that uh, you know they have this fear of impending mortality and they gave, like he gave me so much of wise advice about everything in life uh, as if I was his own son and he shared his regrets with me and what actually mattered towards the end of life. Um, and that really tossed me and I, I still remember I came back home that day and I spoke with my parents about it and I told that um, if I'm going to do a I'm going to do a training in, in any specialty then it would either be pediatrics or oncology because these two are the group of patients that are really innocent pure and you feel like you when you spend time with them uh, you become a better person just by uh, you know imbibing the positive vibes but then I did my, we call internship, uh, maybe you call it clockship here, in pediatrics, and I found that it was very, very heart-rending. Like, I couldn't see these, these little kids uh, having to go through some, even some investigational, uh, like, investigations or procedures, like taking a bone marrow biopsy, in itself was a heart-rending thing. And I thought, like, I can't bear this emotional burden my whole life, so the only choice was to get to oncology. It's interesting. It sounds like all three of us had very similar things that drew us to the field, which, which it sounds, at least for, for, for what I'm interpreting from what you guys have said and here in other conversations, is this very rich and human connection that one has uh, when having the privilege to work with patients who are facing a terminal illness, which is really a profound, uh, it's a profound privilege and honor to be a part of that. Um, and so that, of course, can be very powerful. It is interesting that actually none none of the three of us uh, were drawn by necessarily the biology of the science. And I must admit that, uh, and I still, I, I'm very upfront with the residents, as I'll teach you about clinical medicine, I can teach you something about research methods and critical appraisal, but I'm not going to be the attending who's going to teach you about cancer biology, because my knowledge in that is, is very poor, and my interest in that is very, very low. Yeah. But uh, I do find it amusing that the three of us uh, were drawn for the, the human connection, and then our academic work is in kind of the realm of policy, epidemiology, health services research. Yeah. And I have to tell that, uh, until I graduated medical school, I had no idea about evidence-based medicine. Uh, the medicine that I was taught was textbook-based medicine or evidence-based medicine. Uh, so we didn't know how to how to read a journal article. Uh, so it was like a sea change for me when I started my oncology training and I started to read journal articles. Um, you know, it was not for the love of evidence-based medicine that I went to oncology. Yeah. Anytime I talk to somebody who trained in India, mm-hmm. Nepal. Um, Pakistan, it's a common thing I hear, which is that the way the education is, is not journal article heavy, not evidence-based medicine heavy. Um, and for a lot of people, the first time that they really get awakened to that is in residency. You know, so I guess I was fortunate I got awakened to it a little bit sooner. But once you see mm-hmm. that method of thinking, it's impossible, I think, to go back to the other way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, you know, once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? Yeah. And once you start to see it at one place, you start seeing it everywhere. Mm-hmm. So the first time, uh, my, my eye-opening experience uh, during my training was, you know, uh, everybody was very enthusiastic about a certain chemotherapy. And then 
I was learning the dose of the chemotherapy, the schedule of the chemotherapy, give it every week for three weeks and one week off, and then repeat it for six cycles. And I was learning all that thing. And I thought, okay, wh why not go and look at the original reference paper that uh, provided this recommendation. And I went uh, down to the paper, I read the paper, and I found that there was actually no difference in survival. <laughs> So I was spending my brain cells, my time, my memory in memorizing things that is not helping anyone. So I started to question, like, why even do this? And I did not find a good answer from uh, the colleagues around, uh, the mentors around. So it was like everybody was doing it, so we are also doing it. So that did not make uh, me very happy. And then it happened with one particular regimen. And I guess that was because that, that particular patient was very close to me and I really wanted to help him. Uh, but after that, I felt like whenever someone was using a different regimen for a different cancer, I always had that uh, sense, is this really a good thing to do? Uh, and after that, I started to check each and every regimen with the original paper. And then I started to make up my own mind. And that, that was the moment that I stopped accepting things simply because other people told me that it was a good thing to do. Right. I, I guess I would... Uh say that listeners of the podcast should just recognize they've just heard an early historical description of the beginning of the common sense revolution oncology that Dr. Gowali <laughs> has pioneered. So, so th thank you for that, Michelle. So Vinay, take us back now. You've transitioned into a hematology-oncology fellowship at the NCI, uh, but you're still spending a lot of your scholarly time writing about ending medical reversal. So um, bring us up to speed when you started to have an interest in cancer drug approval and, and, and uh, what steps took you to that? So I was, I guess the first year I really spent a lot of the time trying to learn as, you know, go through the process that Bishal described, which is for every tumor type, understand the clinical trials and see what you agree with and what you may want to push back a little bit about. Then it was in my second year that we really wrote the book in those six months, and I was also doing MPH at Hopkins, so I had a little bit more free time. I had one continuity clinic that year. So kind of, uh, it was a research-heavy year. Okay. But you were doing an MPH, so you had some academic, Class uh, scholarly yep. um, ambitions at that point, right? You, you, you must have, you, you took the program because you wanted a skill set to help you do work, presumably. Correct, right. Yeah. Because I knew that reversal work epidemiology kind of fit hand in hand, hand in glove. Yeah. Um, but when did I start doing oncology work was probably also that year, largely through Tito Fojo, who mm -hmm. I know you both know. Um, Tito gave me... It was Tito's idea to do that thing on oral anti-cancer drug dosing, which we ended up publishing the JCL. It was a really nice paper. And as is common for the way Tito does papers, before Tito does a paper, Tito says, there are seven kinds of sets of data that I want to think about when I write this paper. So help me assemble these. So one is, get me every single TKI approved in the last five years and all the dose reductions and, you know, you know basically these kind of exhaustive tables. But, you know, I learned from him that he's right to think about things that way. When you start to have an idea in your mind, the first thing you should do is kind of look broadly to see, is, this, is there actually something here when you look across many, many studies? And so in this paper that we ultimately published, I think there's like seven tables here. And it was the whole idea of the table was that when you have oral anti-cancer targeted drugs tested head-to-head -head in randomized fashion, that even if the starting doses were logical and had a rationale, dose reductions were often imbalanced between the two arms. And in one arm, dose reductions may be steep, and if a steep dose reduction exists, it penalizes that arm of the study. And so, in fact, I think Tito was right about that. He was absolutely right. And What year was this, Vinay? I think this was 2014. Okay. okay. 2013, 2014 so that we wrote it. So this is when you started to begin publishing in the cancer space. <clears throat> Correct. 
and uh, and uh, it was a it was a project I did for Tito. And when he, when he started having me do the tables, I don't know if I understood what he was getting at, and I don't know if I believed him. But by the time I finished collecting all the data that he wanted me to collect, I believed him. It's kind of like how you feel like when you worked with Tanuk that yeah, day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and so that was when I started to publish a little bit on oncology. It's also the thing about publishing in oncology is, you know, you never publish, I think, the first moment you enter a field. It's always a few years you marinate in a field before you start to get ideas on, you know, what yeah. to publish. Yeah. And so for me, it was like, I think 2014, 15 was the first time I'd published in oncology, but I had been in oncology since 2012. Okay, because I think that's when I became aware of your work. I think I either peer-reviewed some of the papers or some people in the media contacted me for comments, and I remember being really impressed with the work, um, and I just assumed that you were kind of early, mid-career faculty by that point. I had no idea you were still in training and just transitioning. So I I remember reading those, and I actually think we might have exchanged some email dialogue back as early as 14 or 15. Yeah. Well, I was always, I, I think... I, I don't know if I've told you this, but when I was a fellow in oncology, thinking about progression-free survival, it's very dissatisfying when you talk to a lot of people. They can't explain it to you well. And then when you Google, thankfully, your article is one of the first articles that yeah. came up because it was a hugely influential article for me um, that you wrote with Elizabeth Eisenhower, yeah. simply measurable or clinically meaningful. Um, it was a JCO paper, and that was 2007, 2008 that you wrote it? We, no, I started working with Tannock in 08, um, yeah. and the paper with Elizabeth uh, was published in 12, but we were doing the work in 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, this uh, made me realize that one of the very unique skill sets that you have in oncology that most other people don't have is that you don't have a particular focus of tumor type as, your, as a research priority, right? So you keep yourself abreast of knowledge regarding breast cancer, lung cancer, gastric cancer, colorectal cancer, melanoma. And, and that's the reason why you can take this policy view across the tumor types and you can make those cross-tumor type comparisons and like you can say, this is not making sense in breast cancer. Uh, how can you make the same argument in kidney cancer and say that uh, it's making sense? So I guess that's that, that's a very, uh, in today's world of micro-specialization, sub-specialization, that's a very important skill set to have. That's nice of you to say. I guess I'd say, I don't know if I am an expert in every tumor type. I certainly am not. But I do think, I personally, sort of as a point of pride, think it matters. Yeah. And it matters in two ways. Um, well, one, I'll tell you the anecdote. When I was a trainee, there was a guy named Mauricio Burotto, and he's from Chile. And he, Tito took him as a fellow, a Chilean guy who was an oncologist. And Tito told me once that he got a letter from someone in Chile. Now, maybe Tito shouldn't have told me this. But no, Tito told me. He got a letter from someone in Chile that was like, this guy, you got to meet. He's a prodigy. And he would come to our tumor boards, and he was encyclopedic on every tumor type. You know, there's a patient with breast cancer. He's like, oh, yeah, in this study, in figure two, it showed this. And the next patient was kidney cancer. Ah, oh, when you think about kidney cancer, do you not forget this paper that came out in 1998? You know, every, every tumor type, he knew it. So he was, you know, a, a great clinician. And he was always so astute on rounds with pointing out, you know, some consideration you might have missed or some cross-tumor comparison that, you know, disease-specific expert wouldn't know. And I admired him a great deal, and I kind of probably tried very hard to say, how does Mauricio know all these studies? And maybe I should start to know all these Mm -hmm. studies, too. You know, he was kind of a role model um, in terms of that. And then I found over the years that um, it is good for policy because it helps you. But it's also good, I think, for clinical oncology. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes when you make decisions, I think it's stronger when you can kind of think broadly. You know, for instance, in colorectal cancer, I think it was you who turned me on to this, you know, there are randomized control trials that test for asymptomatic metastatic uh, disease 
what is the optimal timing of chemotherapy? Do you wait for symptoms or do you treat right away? And those studies have failed to show a survival advantage. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole bunch of tumor types in which we don't have those studies, but people are, of course, trigger-happy to treat at the first radiographic side yeah. of metastatic disease, but that may not always make sense. And if they knew the colon cancer history, they might, you know, see some parallels yeah. or at least see some humility. Oh, yeah. We wrote that paper in this year called Same Data and Different Interpretations. Right. And we That's made a great example. Comparison. Yeah. In breast cancer, this is happening, but in lung cancer, ovarian cancer, yeah. yeah. So then I want to take the listeners then through the transition from oncology training, where um, clearly you had an aptitude for it in, in, in diverse settings with... Um, Ending medical reversal is one theme of work, and cancer drug policy and benefit is another theme of work. And then you transition to OHSU as junior faculty. But um, walk the listeners through the thought process, because you've told me anecdotally that, as you said earlier in this interview, that you went into medicine to be a doctor and look after patients. And in many ways, although you, you uh, enjoy the scholarship and research activities, um, I think you feel like you wish you didn't have to do some of it. Walk the listeners through that. Yeah, absolutely. I think... I think, uh, I hope, you know, maybe this is all a long detour and that someday I'll be able to get back to it. But I think maybe, how, maybe it's how you feel, because when I read your papers, I get the sense of that, is that, you know, when you, when you want to do the best for your patient in front of you and you want to give them recommendations that you think make sense and you want to have good evidence to help guide those recommendations and you're not getting that, you're not getting what you want to be a clinical doctor, that's kind of pushes a lot of us towards research. You know, in your case, a lot of your observational studies that are really wonderful, for instance, bladder cancer in Ontario province, uh, that's motivated by a sense of, like, well, what's actually going on? You know, it's not all the Grossman paper out yeah. here, right? Yeah. Um, and similarly, for me, it's, it's, you know, why are they approving these drugs if we have such a scrap of data, um, you know, for them? So is it fair to say, Vinay, that in some ways you feel compelled to do this work? I would say that that is a... I do feel compelled, yeah. I guess it is shocking to me sometimes that, you know, when I think about you and I think about Bishal, sometimes I feel like if there's only a small handful of us who are doing this kind of common sense work in oncology. And how can a field with so many presumably sharp people who are legendary lack common sense, you know? And it seems as if it shouldn't be necessarily yeah. me as a junior faculty. I have been thinking about it quite a lot recently. And yeah. I don't know, like, whenever I talk about common sense and cancer policy stuff, I feel like a lot of people actually resonate with what I'm saying. There are, there are some people who disagree, of course, but a lot of people do agree and they, they, they feel like, yeah, we, we believe uh, this is the way to go and we believe that uh, we have been misled in some way or other. What I haven't been able to understand is, I think the common sense people, I think that's my personal perception. There are, there are plenty of common sense people out there, yes. but I don't think they are as vocal as we are <clears throat> And for some reason, they are subdued. But, uh, you know, let's say the people who want to hype any new drug, uh, the people who want to exaggerate the benefits of treatment, uh, who, you know, let's say the hype group, they are pretty vocal. They, they are pretty vocal about everything. There is a new drug on the market. It shows that uh, the response increases by 10%. Uh, they will be on, on, on media, they will be on the record saying this is a game changer. Uh, there is olaparib in pancreatic cancer. It does not improve survival, does not improve quality of life, but people say it's, if you are, a, you are an oncologist, it's a duty to uh, prescribe yeah. this drug. If you don't prescribe this drug, then, then you have failed your patient as an oncologist. Like, people are making pretty strong statements based on so low quality data, uh, and they are all over the media. But 
let's take the example of same olaparibin pancreatic cancer. I think I have met like the seventy percent of oncologists I meet, they say no, the data is very weak. Yeah. And we should not be using this. Thirty percent of the patients I thirty percent of the oncologists I meet, they say, um, I think we should we should use it. Um, out of that thirty, maybe ten percent are really very strong uh, recommenders of uh, olaparib. And just giving an example. Right. But when you look at media, when you look at the news coverage of the drug, you'll feel like 100% of the oncologists are, are cheerleading. Right. But in reality, 70% of the oncologists are not going to use the drug. But as a patient, you Google olaparib in pancreatic cancer. As a, as a media person, you want to find out what's behind this drug. And then you feel like it's such a wonderful drug and all the oncologists in the planet are going to use this. Yeah, there's that quote by Baselga, when you understand the biology, even the giants, they too crumble, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess I'd say that I think that's a great example. And I guess I think there are a few things going on there. One, I have the same experience. Mm-hmm. You know, when I go lecture in Canada and Europe and even in many U.S. centers, there's a lot of the people in the audience who agree, uh, but they're very silent. They're not on social media. They're not writing editorials. They're not really saying this. I think there may be some professional disincentives to be critical. If you are anybody who wants to have repeat uh, research work with drug companies, you may be worried that they're not going to work with you if you come across as too critical. So they, a lot of people, good people, keep quiet. I also think that the KOL suck up all the oxygen in the room. The handful of conflicted, big-name people, once they say that something is great, it takes a lot of maybe defiance for anyone else to have the courage to say, well, it's not so great. Um, I think that the Olaparib is a great example because it's not just the result that's not great. I think the study design is really yeah, questionable. It's very flawed. Will, will you take some, I mean, who would even enroll somebody when you're going to stop chemotherapy yeah. after four cycles when you can only continue? So I think um, the issues you guys have raised, I, there, there's two points I'd like to make to follow up. One is, as Bichelle said, I think there is a lot of common sense out there, but I think historically perhaps um, the hype um, was louder than the common sense. And I think it, it reminds me of a, a famous editorial in JCO that Ian Tannock and his fellow Boston Saruga at the time wrote um, entitled The Emperor Has No Clothes. Mm-hmm. And I suspect for many years people also might have had some of these common sense thoughts but perhaps felt um, uh, that their hands were tied or perhaps they had an imposter syndrome and didn't think that those concerns could be verbalized in the current context. And building on that, I think that it's amazing um, the, the next generation of, uh, of oncologists I think are, are starting to really listen to this, and you know I'm only a few years older than you guys, but I see you as almost uh, you know bridging a generation between me and the next generation. And uh, the work that you've done, uh, largely through social media, I think is empowering the next generation to ask these difficult questions and be willing to um, to take some risks and and challenge the, the the dogma and the status quo. Listeners of this podcast have heard Dr. Prasad and other guests uh, discuss thoughts about medical Twitter, and so I think I'll leave that aside for now. But I do, <laughs> I do want to hear um, Vinay tell us the story uh, of the podcast. And I, I should tell you, listeners of the podcast would like to know this, that in preparation of this interview, I did some background reading, and that had to do with going into um, municipal records in the city of Portland. <laughs> and it turns out that actually it, the, the, the Plenary Session podcast uh, was actually mandated by the local government because there was a rogue oncologist uh, riding his bicycle through Portland, muttering to himself an alphabet soup, K-O-L, P-F-S, P-F-S, K-O-L, over and over and over again. And 
and uh, the citizens became worried about this deranged chemotherapist, and, and then he started talking about ghosts and ghost writers. And, and uh, so, so the mayor said, you need to channel this energy, young Dr. Prasad, into a podcast. So I think that's, that's probably one version of the story, but Vinay, uh, walk us through that. Well, that reminds me of the, the, the magnet Jeremy Setnar gave me when he heard I started a podcast that says, I couldn't afford a therapist, so I started a podcast. <laughs> um, but I guess you guys were asking me about this at dinner the other night. Um, I think, you know, when I started on faculty, I had no idea, I think, at that time that social media would be, you know, perhaps as impactful as, as it has been. I'm surprised that Chris has an idea. <laughs> I keep see as we said at dinner the other night. I don't need to be on Twitter because I've got Bishal, Vinay, Elizabeth, Pramesh, Richard, Scott, Barry. Uh, a lot of people who who are they're speaking. I think the truth, and so they're already saying all the things I'd want to say anyhow. Uh-huh. Um, so I guess what really did it for me was you know I commute by bicycle and I I, I listen to podcasts on my commute. Uh, Traffic safety be damned. Uh, <laughs> um, and I had listened to, you know, mostly what I listen to is politics and news and general interest podcasts. And I, I, to be honest, I, I didn't think it was possible to do a medicine podcast that I would kind of want to do. By that I mean, I wouldn't want to dumb anything down. I wouldn't want to do kind of a general interest medicine podcast because I sometimes cringe when I listen to that. I think all doctors cringe when they watch medical TV shows or listen to podcasts because it's impossible for them to capture all of the nuance that we want them to capture. Um, so I, I didn't think it was possible to do it. Um, then somebody turned me on to a podcast that was about law, and I assumed that, like all other law podcasts, would have to simplify and dumb things down. But I discovered as I listened to it more and more that it was really a law podcast intended for people who wanted to practice law, who were law students, um, who were going to go down that career path. And I found that even though I was a layperson, you know, I know, I know nothing about the law, by listening to enough episodes and maybe some of the primer episodes, I could kind of get a sense and understand some things. And I started to understand a lot more about the topic, which in this case was the Supreme Court. And so I thought, wow, here's an example. Somebody is a technical expert, and they're talking to technical experts, but they're doing so in a conversational way, and they're keeping it fun, and they have you know, points they want to make and get across. And so then I thought, you know, maybe it's worth a try to see, could it be done in oncology? Could I not dumb things down, not simplify things, um, but still try to keep it lively and entertaining? And so I guess the experiment has been going on for about a year now. And I think it's working. I, I, think, I, think, it's working. I, think, it's, I think it's a positive trial. It's a positive trial with minimum, <laughs> minimum spend. And, um, I mean, as, as, as we've talked about before, listeners of the podcast should know that listening to plenary session is, is now mandated by law in Canada, and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police enforce that. In fact, after Grand Rounds today, well, a very prominent uh, professor of medicine told the House staff, if you're not following this guy on Twitter and listening to this plenary session podcast, you really must. I actually heard people also say Dr. Prasad should be in the election for the upcoming Prime Minister position of Canada. But uh, <laughs> that's another conversation. So transitioning from um, podcasts, you've provided uh, incredible commentary for our profession. Um, we haven't touched on the mentorship that you've done, but that's obviously been a huge part of your career is helping junior trainees and students develop research ideas and projects and see them through to completion. Um, but, but give us, uh, and I might ask Bishal the same question, give us a sense for what, what do you want to do in the next five years? And 
if you fast forward a few decades to the end of your career, how would you define um, your career being a success? I don't think there will be a decades because he's retiring soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I did write that article, Making Room, so I better practice what That's I right. preach. Basically, that article said, uh, Booth, look out. You only have eight more years. Bishal and I are coming. <laughs> Well, I, I'm kind of the middleman here because I think I'm halfway between you and Bashal in terms of training. That's I'm like, right. I'm the midpoint. Yeah. Um, so we all kind of span different different time points in career. That's why we bond so well, I think. Oh, because we're all kind of a few years apart. Um, I guess it's a tough question. I mean, the right answer is probably, I, I don't know the answer. You know, I, I do hope that on some of these issues that we talk about, which are really the same issues, which is, trial design that doesn't really answer questions that matter to patients, enrollment of people who are unrepresentative, the use of endpoints that don't capture what we care about, the rampant drug approval and the absence of good data, the poor post-marketing commitments. I mean, in five years, I'd like to see some of that get better. Maybe not all of it, but hopefully some of it, or at least start to move in the right direction. I think we continually move in the bad direction. I would settle for just a few more voices out there who start talking about this. You know, I haven't fact-checked this, so I should do that. But I, I read something somewhere that says, you know, it only takes like a 5% swing of opinion to really have a movement. And I don't know if that's true or not. I'd love to see the data. But I think that kind of idea might not be too off, off the mark in terms of oncology. It would only take a few more voices to this, and we'd have a lot of traction. Because I think we happen to be on the side of right. You know, it's not that we're really great speakers that anyone listens to us. It's just that we're speaking something that's so obvious, as you put it, Always, Bishal. And then in terms of career, what would I feel good about? I guess I would say, I think I said this before, which is that I think we have a vanity as academics that we think people remember us because of our papers. And um, maybe we remember, people remember you for one of your papers or two of your papers, but people often forget your papers. And people remember you more for how you treated them when they were a student and came to you for a project. They remember you more for when they came into your office and they wanted to talk to you about should they go into peds or surgery. They remember you more for were you able to, they needed 10 credit hours so they could graduate. Could you just create an elective for them so they could get their 10 credits to satisfy the bureaucracy? They remember you more for those things. So I guess I hope to be remembered more for those things, which are things that are not on this podcast. Um, and I do think you know, you, I, I kind of tease you a little bit about this because I guess you're two years into your full professorship and I did say 10 years is the cutoff. But, but I do think that, you know, I do believe in this philosophy that we have to make room for the next generation of ideas. And so I don't want to overstay my welcome. And I, and I have a lot of interest outside of medicine. Um, but don't make this uh, retire early because my future lies in here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I guess I hope that that article wasn't meant to say that you need to retire after 10 years. It's just that at a certain point in your career, you shouldn't be aspiring to climb the ladder any higher. And you shouldn't be aspiring to say, what can you do more for you? You should be thinking more about what you can do for others. And I think in that, we all agree on that philosophy. Because there's no limit to higher. Like, how high you can go. I, I agree. Thanks, Benai. Bishal, I'll just ask you for some thoughts, but I'll share some of mine. And Benai, I, I guess I'm surprised that you're not at the point yet where 
you are doing so many things that you need to make some tough choices about which things you're going to let go. And maybe you can respond to that in a moment. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm about five years ahead of you. And I've had to, in the last couple of years, you know, reflect on what is it I'm, that I'm doing that, um, that I, I, I'm going to stop so I can create space to do new things. And obviously, at the core of the mission for the three of us, this goes without saying, but I know from personal conversations with you guys that um, we're, we're doctors first and looking after patients is the thing that is the most important to us and, and the most gratifying and of course the thing that we'll look back upon our career as, as the core um, of, of what we do. But in, in the academic realm, um, I've gone through a few different iterations in my career, predominantly building a program in health services research focused in Ontario, in a high-income country. Um, but with the sabbatical several years ago, I've now really started to move into doing parallel work in the global oncology space. And um, I, I, I started my career working with Dr. Tanik and others, looking at some of the cancer drug policy endpoint issues um, that both of you have done a lot of work on in recent times. And so I feel like actually in, in many ways, to create space for me to do more of the global oncology and perhaps to continue doing work in the concept of benefit and value and, and meaning, um, I've actually had to dial back my Ontario Health Services Research Program substantially. Um, and so I, have you come to that crossroads yet, Vinay, where you've had to make some decisions about what it is you're going to wind down or at least cut back on a little bit to create the time, space, and energy to move other things forward? That's a tough question. I guess... I think I have had to make some cut. I think we all have to kind of figure out what we want to do with our time. And I'll just say one aside about burnout. You know, I see so much about burnout, and I hear people complain to me constantly about things about their job that they don't like. And sometimes I just ask them, why, why do you keep doing those things? Just say no. And I say, well, you know, then I'll lose 10% of my pay or something. I say, so lose it. What do you need that money for, you know? At some point, you know, you, you, we can pay the bills. I mean, you can't make yourself miserable. Um, so I guess I try to embody that in a few ways. One is I kind of have made a mental pledge that somebody might not like this, but I made a mental pledge that I'm not going to write any more review articles. They take a long time. They're thousands of words. They take months to really do right. And I don't know if I'm adding anything that other people aren't adding, even though maybe some of the review articles I've written have been heavily cited, and I sometimes see people use the figure that we made. You know, I don't feel like there's anything too novel there. Uh, same goes for commentaries and perspectives. A lot of that has been honestly shifted to my podcast. I don't need to write a commentary on uh, Polo because I said everything I wanted to say about it on the podcast. And that's something very quick, kind of stream of consciousness almost. I read the paper and here's the 10 things I thought of. Um, so that saves some time. Maybe five years ago, I would have written a commentary there. Um, original articles, I try to move all the labor of the data collection and stuff to trainees. And I try to, I mean, I wish I had trainees for longer because... The goal, I think, of mentoring someone to do research is, one, how do you walk someone through an idea that you might have? Two, how do you get it to the point where you can give them an idea, they can do the whole thing themselves? And then three, how do you get them to the point where they have their own ideas and they can do the whole thing themselves? And I don't know how many times I've gotten somebody to three, but I think I've definitely gotten people to two, where you know, they're people who can you, you toss out an idea and they can come back to you with a finished product. They know how to do all the steps in between. And so I think like one of the ways in which I might save time is, if I get more people I work with to the third where they can just kind of have their own agenda. But I guess I'm, like you, I think the one part that I would never want to give up is the clinical part. To some degree, I want to be clinically active. I like lecturing people, but I like it more when they're trainees. You know, Grand Rounds is great. Everyone loves Grand Rounds. But it's what we did yesterday. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is so well received. Yeah. And, and then the other thing I think about with that is 
giving somebody a one-hour lecture is kind of also, the more I think about things, it's, I don't find it as satisfying as teaching a two-week class. Because it's something to be said for, some of these ideas are long and complex, and people have only heard, as Bashal says, the, the KOLs. Yeah. To change someone's thinking, you can't change them an hour. You need to really have like three hours a day for two weeks to really kind of give them an alternate way of looking at things and answer all these questions and fill in all the holes. And I find that kind of more enjoyable, thinking about that kind of curricular development. Be careful what you say, Vinay, because uh, there might be a couple department heads at this university that bring you back for a long time then to teach for a few <laughs> weeks at a time. But in any case, um, this has been a wonderful discussion. We might need to reconvene um, for part two of this uh, reverse plenary session, because there's certainly other topics I know the three of us want to discuss. But my co-host actually does have to catch an airplane from Kingston to Kathmandu. So um, Vinay, it's been a pleasure to have you here. Bishal and I are very grateful for your time. Uh, Thank you for joining us on the plenary session stage. Yeah, it has been such fun. It's been such fun. It's a pleasure. The sun has come out. The lake is dazzling. Is. The yacht club is more, good. A few more meetings this afternoon, and then I think Dr. Prasad will find himself either in a sailboat or, or a canoe on the, uh, the waters of Lake Ontario. <laughs> Thanks for having me. We're doing a little secret recording without Chris Booth. I'm with Bishal Gaywali. So, Dr. Gaywali, where do you see yourself in five years? Uh, to be honest, I, I don't know. But uh, I, like, the research activities that I do, I do it out of passion. I don't do it out of compulsion. Or, you know, I don't have grants. So, like, these are things that I do because I feel there is a need to do these things. And uh, I feel that uh, I may be able to make some difference. But I may be too naive. Uh, so you two will need to let me know if I'm being too naive because uh, as we discuss, uh, we have such a perfect combination at uh, three different stages of career and that's so nice to have advice from uh, people who have traveled this path before. Uh, but of course, clinical activity is the prime source of satisfaction. Like it's the thing that wakes you up in the morning and gets you out of bed. Right, like you don't get out of bed thinking, oh, I, I, I want to write this paper. You get out of bed thinking, I want to help people. Or in my case, I'm late to clinic. I better hurry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think someone said last night, it might have been Dr. Eisenhower, that said that we could be brothers. I'm not sure if she was speaking about the striking physical resemblance <laughs> or, or the way in which we see the world and think. I have taken a photo of you two uh, where Chris is pointing towards his house, boasting to Vinay that, Look, you can see my house from here. That's my house. I have such a good photo of that. Oh, that's <laughs> he, he ice skates over there. Yeah, yeah. So wait, the honest question, now that Chris Booth is out of your shot, isn't he a real tyrant to work for? <laughs> uh, the honest answer is, I couldn't have uh, asked for a better mentor. Really. Uh, I guess, like, we all need role models in life. So... If 10 years down the lane, if I am what Chris Booth is today, I'd be very happy with my life. It's very kind of you to say, Vishal. And uh, one of the joys of, uh, of the work that we do is actually being able to interact with people like you and Vinay and kind of have our careers evolve together in parallel. I'll make sure that my salary is increased from tomorrow. Okay, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. 
Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.